I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. We'll be turning to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, and we'll read God's Word under the heading of Righteousness Given. Righteousness Given from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Let's read the Word of God together. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the Word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Blessed congregation, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is your highest priority in life? In the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all the other things that concern our lives All the anxieties that we may have, where will we live? How will we be clothed? What will we eat? Jesus says, seeking first His righteousness is the first priority. And all the other things will be added unto you. Our first priority in life is that we would be righteous. Because being righteous has eternal consequences. If you have been with us for the first three chapters of the book of Romans, according to the Apostle Paul, how are we doing in regard to our own righteousness? By way of reminder, flip with me in your Bibles if you will. We saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that we all know God, all mankind knows God, but Paul says we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. 118. 
We cannot claim that we are not sinners, for we are all sinners, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 9. Nor can we claim because we are religious that we're in the covenant, we have the law, or we've been baptized, that we are excused. Because chapter 2, verse 1 says, even the righteous people, the best people, are stained with sin and need Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw last in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul even looks into our own lives. And what do we see in 3, verse 11 through 12? He shows us that we have sinned in our characters. 11 through 12, we've sinned in our conversations. 13 through 14, and we've even sinned in our conduct. Verses 15 through 18. We only prove Romans chapter 3, verse 20 to be true that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. We look into our own hearts, and we are so far from meeting the law's demands, aren't we? Look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21. But now... When someone says, I really appreciated what you said, but. Or, that looks good, but. Or, I didn't like that, but. We know that the conjugation, but, has the power to overthrow. Has the power to reverse the previous sentence. Right? which has led Martin Lloyd-Jones to call these next two words the most wonderful two words in the whole of the Scriptures. But now. He is willing to reverse the whole argument. Willing to overthrow everything he said from Romans chapter 1.18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Because there is something more powerful than our sins. There is something more powerful than our unrighteousness, which he has already told us in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The Gospel, Paul says, is more powerful than our sins. The Gospel, Paul says, can reverse the indictment of the first three chapters. Reverse our deadness. And the Gospel is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me. The Gospel is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me. I want you to notice in this chapter how righteousness is given. We're told it's given in grace. It's received by faith. And it's apart from works. 
It's given in grace, received by faith, and it's given apart from works. And it's clear that the Apostle Paul has turned from examining our sins to examining the righteousness of Christ. In fact, uh, if you don't know Greek, that's okay, but in this short paragraph, Paul uses the word to justify in Greek, diakosune, seven times in this short little paragraph. In our Pew Bibles, it's translated four times, just for your information, as the righteousness of God in verse 21, 22, 25, and 26. It's translated as to justify in verse 24 and 26. And it's translated as just in verse 26. But they all come from the same word, deakosune, to justify, to stand aright. Paul has clearly turned from looking at us and our sinfulness to now looking at what God is willing to do to remedy the problem. He's concerned with our right standing before God. One of the things I always appreciated about certain teachers is how before they taught you what you need to know, they told you what you shouldn't follow. What they're not teaching. That's how you know you have a good teacher. Here Paul does the same thing. He tells us first what he's not saying. Verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And I wonder, congregation, if verse 21 is autobiographical. Is he thinking of himself when he writes verse 21? Because no one knew that you can't earn God's righteousness more than the Apostle Paul. Remember that in an earlier letter, Romans was written towards the end of his life, he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 of his own attempt to try to earn God's righteousness. Do you remember this? He tells us, before I knew Christ, I tried to earn God's favor. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, in zeal a persecutor of the church, righteous according to the law. This is Paul's own testimony of himself. And he was humanly estimated to be blameless. He says nobody could say anything against him. And back in the day, this of course was the way in which somebody would become famous. Think of the great Greek philosophers. Think of the great Jewish rabbis. If he had continued in this blameless way, with the depth of knowledge that he had, he could have had a famous career amongst his people. He even admits this in Philippians 3, verse 7. He says, there's great gain in this lifestyle. The riches, the fame, the glory of being perceived as perfect. The congregation, what does Paul say about his own righteousness? 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Literally translates to rubbish. I treated it as trash, he says. The old translations used to say, I treated it as dung. That at the end of the day, to have everything you might want to be blameless to before men, it won't mean anything when you stand before God. What Paul has told us in Philippians 3 and Romans 3 verse 21 is that we can't earn our righteousness before God. And do we realize here that Paul is contradicting every culture and religion by saying this? I don't know about you, but every time I talk to someone, try to share the Gospel with them, the common response I get is that God will accept us if we are good. If we are moral. Or they'll say something along the lines of, I'm a spiritual person. But Paul says the Bible has always taught that righteousness is not earned. It's always been taught. In fact, all the way back in the book of Leviticus even, we read in Leviticus 19 verse 2, we are told that we are to be holy. If we want to be holy before the Lord, we need to be holy as the Lord is holy. Jesus likewise in Matthew 5 verse 48 even says these words He says about the righteousness God requires of us. 5 verse 48 You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard for righteousness that is acceptable before God, the standard of holiness which will grant you access to His presence, is perfection. Complete righteousness. Didn't we read that also from Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible has always taught That you cannot earn your righteousness before God. Righteousness, Paul says, is manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's saying this is what the Bible has always taught. Abraham was a sinner, wasn't he, congregation? Was he a sinner after the first time he sold his wife? to be free? Or is he sinner after the second time he gave his wife away to be free himself? What about his sin with Hagar? We talked about last week. But it still says that it was credited to him as righteousness. David was a sinner. The adulterous, murderous king still says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Righteousness isn't ours to earn. Righteousness is something that's given, Paul says. We cannot earn it. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to focus for a moment on that word glory Paul mentions in Romans 3, verse 21. 23, excuse me. We have fallen short of the glory. We read the Bible, we come across this word glory quite often, and it refers to the magnificent presence of God. If God, if you are in the presence of God's glory, it means you are in the presence of God's manifest presence. We read in Isaiah 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Psalm 24, David says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And he says, we've fallen short of this glory. Douglas Moo A commentator on the book of Romans helps us understand what this means that we've fallen short of being part of the glory of God. And he says what we've actually fallen short of is we've fallen short of being God-like. We've fallen short of being like God. In other words, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 23 is that we've fallen short of righteousness. We cannot earn our own righteousness. If we get righteousness, it has to be something completely apart from our own works. And so, we come to the most beautiful truth of the whole of the Bible. Look with me at verse 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is a way to be justified. Paul's, there's doxology here. There's rejoicing here. There is a way to become God-like again. To be in the presence of God again. Not through the works of our own hands, but for those who believe and receive the gift of His righteousness. This is the first time Paul will use the word justification in the book of Romans. And it means to declare righteous. We've fallen short of being like God. But by God's grace, he says, God declares us to be righteous. And justification is actually a legal term. Sometimes we use the word, we don't hear it too often in our culture, but we can think of it as a presidential pardon where the president looks at a criminal and says, you can go free. But that's not what's being described here. Nor does it mean that God regards us as justified. But when we say that it's a legal reality, what we mean is that the justified person is acquitted of all charges. And that when God looks at the person who is justified, He doesn't see any sin in them. They've been acquitted of every crime. As the Catechism says, as if they have never sinned nor been a sinner. 
Do you see what Paul is saying here? By grace, Romans 1.18 from chapter 3, verse 20 is wiped away. By grace, your sins are cleansed. By grace, your evil nature is gone. It's a gift. It's all of grace. It's unmerited. This is the way that God has acted in Christ. Paul says there's nothing I could have done to have earned it. There's nothing that we can do to have earned it. His justifying verdict is completely free. It's free. Now, a word of application this morning. The word, the name Satan often can be mean, often can be translated as accuser. That he stands before God like we see in the book of Job and he accuses his saint, God's saints of their sins. Look how they've fallen. Look at their failures. They're not worthy of being in your presence, Lord. Notice here that in the cross of Christ, Jesus is your great defender. He sticks up for you and cleanses you and removes, of, of all, removes you of all your sins. You are righteous by grace. This morning, whatever sins you're struggling with, are you trusting in Christ? Then all I see is Christians. All I see is saints. And all God sees is saints. So that we can come before God and be in His presence and be reckoned as righteous, regarded as holy, purely pure and clean and holy in Christ. But how do we make it ours? We come to what's historically been called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the article Martin Luther said upon which the church stands or falls. And this is really the most debated doctrine in the history of the church. It was this doctrine from Romans chapter 3 that caused the greatest division of the church in human history in the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Where an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther teaching through the book of Romans, was tormented in his soul with the question, how does the righteousness provided in Christ become mine? And principally what he was asking was, if God is always holy and always righteous, and He maintains a perfect record, how can that God make sinners who deserve justice righteous how can God be holy and the God of sinners how can we even right now be in the presence of God I want you to notice something here in Romans chapter 3 the apostle Paul actually uses two Old Testament words he uses the word redemption and he uses the word propitiation. Redemption and propitiation. And these were words that the Jews at the time would have understood what Paul was talking about. But maybe we don't as much today. 
But look at verse 24, the second half of verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption throughout the rest of the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, Ephesians 1 verse 7, is only ever used in regards to freeing slaves from their masters. This word is only ever used in regard to freeing slaves from their masters. And this would have been a familiar idea to the first century Jews who would have been a part of the Roman church. Remember that in the Old Testament, that if someone got themselves into debt, one of the most common means of paying off their debt was by selling themselves into slavery. And then when they were sold into slavery, this was actually a means by which they would be cared for, and the master would care for their family, would care for their provision, their housing, their protection, but the slave would never be free again. So God made a provision so that the slaves could be freed in His law. He made a provision called redemption. There was a kinsman redeemer who could, out of the abundance of his wealth, come to the slave owner and buy back his slaves out of debt. Who could take them from slavery so that they could be free again. By Paul using the word redemption, we know that we're slaves. We have been slaves to sin. Satan has been a brutal master. We have had no hope of freedom. But Christ has come, says Paul. And He has in His redemption given us His grace. He has paid the debt. And He has set us free. Now the second word Paul uses is even more challenging And it's the word propitiation. Propitiation. Verse 25, he says of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, not many of us know what the word propitiation means. It's a challenging word. A word that my pastor back in the day used to say, if there was any uh, word a long theological word that we all should learn. It's the word propitiation. And the reason why it's so important is because it comes from the Old Testament. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you go to Exodus chapter 25, it talks about the building of the Ark of the Covenant and it describes the lid, it describes the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in Greek as the propitiation. The mercy seat is the propitiation. The mercy seat was a place of central focus in Israel. On the Day of Atonement, the most important day of the year, the high priest of Israel would come and he would lay his hands on the head of a goat and he would confess his sins and he would confess Israel's sins, and he would confess the sins of the priesthood on this goat, and they would shed its blood, and they would pour it into a bowl, and they would go one time per year to the mercy seat 
They would go to the propitiation. And he would take the blood and he would pour it out on the Ark of the Covenant. He did this to cover our sins, we're told in Exodus. We're told that the propitiation averted God's wrath. And instead of God pouring out His wrath upon us, He would pour it out upon an animal. That's what propitiation is. The covering of our sins and the averting of God's wrath the satisfying of God's justice. And look what Paul says of Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation. It was as if God the Father went to Christ and confessed our sins upon Him. That our sins were laid upon Jesus. The sins of the priesthood are laid upon Jesus. And His blood is shed. And it's poured out upon the cross. That is the mercy seat. That is the place where God's wrath is diverted. And our sins are atoned for. And it's received, Paul says. This was Luther's breakthrough in 1517. Received by faith. That by faith, the trusting and the believing upon Christ, upon the cross, spiritually our sins are given to Him. Our iniquity is laid upon His shoulders. Our Sabbath breaking is placed upon His shoulders. Our yelling at mom and dad. Our theft, our lust, our covetousness. It's given to Him. And God, by faith, gives Jesus' righteousness to me. This doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with sins or that we don't have a daily need to confess our sins. We surely do. But what it means is that when God looks at the person who by faith is trusting in Christ's cross, He sees Jesus' righteousness. He regards me and treats me as if I had never even sinned a single time. He regards me and treats me as if I had never been a sinner. As if I had been perfectly obedient for all time. It almost sounds too easy. We could believe if God said you had to follow all these laws and do all these things and then maybe you'll be able to get into heaven like... No. He says, all we have to do is believe and have faith. Just like the Old Testament saints did. One of the more curious passages here is in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. What he's saying is that the Old Testament saints believed and trusted in Christ. They looked forward to Christ. And that He chose not to punish their sins because Christ would come and lay His life down for their sakes as well. 
in a similar way, by faith, we look back upon Christ. We look by faith back to Christ. And by faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to me. The most important application today is how can we be right with God? And look what Paul says. He says, we can be righteous before God through faith, trusting, believing, leaning upon Christ, apart from our own works or actions, receiving this gift freely in His cross. In His cross. How are you righteous before God? Paul says it's simply by faith. Well, I should say in grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So the cross then is the greatest example of God's love. It's the greatest example of God's love. John Murray put it this way. This is our third point. But John Murray put it this way, God so loved the objects of His wrath so much that He gave His own Son to the end that by His own blood He should make provision for the removal of His wrath. In the cross, God is not indifferent to sin or gives up His role as the judge. No, God doesn't set His justice aside. Hear what the Apostle is saying. At the cross, God turns His justice upon Himself. His justice requires that His sin, or that sins be punished and that His wrath be satisfied. But in His love, the Father decreed to send His Son to be the propitiation for the elect. So if moved by love, God is going to save us. There's only one way He could do it. Through the cross. Paul says it's the greatest evidence of Christ's love. Verse 26, it is to show His righteousness. Show His justice, His love. This is the wonder of the cross and the beauty of the Gospel. That in the very same stroke, both the love of God and the justice of God are put on display. It shows that God is a God who is a just judge. Who cares enough to set a standard. But He is also a justifier who has done everything that we need to restore and forgive us. He is both just and justifier. He fulfills the law. He upholds the law. And He saves sinners such as us. So if righteousness is wholly given to us by God's grace, and it's only received by faith as the instrument of our souls, and even this faith is a gift from God, then there's only one conclusion. We are justified 
by faith apart from the works of the law. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, but by thy blood and power alone. And so Paul concludes with this word of application here. That if it's by grace, through faith, in Christ that we are saved, how can sinful man conceivably boast about anything he might do? This is why Paul says, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. There is no cause for boasting in this salvation. Because it's holy of Christ. The only thing we could ever claim is our sins. The sins that made the salvation necessary. And so, my friends, what we see from Romans chapter 3, the beginning of our study in the section on salvation, Romans chapter 3, 21 through chapter 11, is that salvation is holy of God, as the reformers said of old. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. When we look to the Word and receive its testimony. Let us pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that You would work in our hearts to receive this Word of truth. That we are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works. What a marvelous gift we have been given. May we receive it with a believing heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.